Hi everyone, and welcome to the Illustration Department Podcast. My name is Giuseppe Castellano. In this podcast, I talk to folks in illustration, graphic design, publishing, animation, and other creative fields about their beginnings, their successes, and the bumps and bruises they've experienced along the way. In this episode, my guest is cartoonist and writer Ariel Schrag. Illustrators and writers answer a lot of questions before they create something. Age-old questions like, what should I do? How should I do it? Lately, do I have the right to do this? Has been added to the mix. Among other topics, Ariel and I look back on her first steps starting in high school as a comics creator. We touch on the current discourse surrounding what illustrators and writers can and can't do with their work, and Ariel shares advice on how to get going on that thing you want to create. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Do you still live in Brooklyn? I do. Whereabouts? Yeah, I've been in Williamsburg for, I moved in here uh, to this apartment in 2011. I've actually lived in this neighborhood since 2003, but have been sort of back and forth between here and LA. Oh, wow. And have now been back for like the past 10 years. Yeah, so you've seen, uh, safe to say, you've seen quite a few changes in Williamsburg from 2003 to now. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like my wife and I first visited Williamsburg in maybe late 90s, early to really early 2000s. And it was, mm-hmm. uh, I don't remember the stops exactly, but I do, I, maybe it was Lorimer. Like you didn't really go past Lorimer Street. <laughs> yeah. Is that it? No, I know. Well, yeah. I moved here because I went to Columbia and my best friend lived, moved to Williamsburg mm-hmm. while I was in school there. And so this was like 2001, too. And yeah. I would come meet her off of the Lorimer stop, and I would be terrified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, there's now a, like laughing. We were told, I was told, you know, if you're going to go to Brooklyn, if you're going to go on the L line, don't go past the first stop. Whatever that first stop was, I don't remember the, yeah. the stop name. You know, that that's Bedford. Williamsburg. Just don't go beyond that. Yeah. Obviously, now it's the 50th stop is, is still Williamsburg. And um, if you're on the F train going southbound in Brooklyn, you do not go past the 7th Street stop in Park Slope because it Mm -hmm. gets, quote, dangerous beyond that. Yeah. And this was, again, early 2000s. So lots have changed. So um, I wanted to start off kind of easy in the beginning. What drew you to comics, no pun intended? Well... My dad was a visual artist, mm-hmm. um, so he he was a lawyer by profession, but had done a lot of art when he was younger. Mm-hmm. It, he was really into comics, basically, and he mm-hmm. had a collection of like really old Uncle Scrooge, Plastic Man, some Art Crumb. Nice. Um, and so he based like I he would kind of take down those comics for me to look at. And that was really exciting for me. And and as I grew older, he let me look at the art crumb. And I just kind of had this pretty evolved introduction to comics. So I, you know, he 
they had mouse that when the first installment came out, mm-hmm. I did like a book report on it in third grade, <laughs> and, like, <laughs> had to do like an aside with the teacher who I think saw the picture of Spiegelman's mother, like wow. having committed suicide in the bathroom. She was like, uh, wait, wait, well, wait a minute, Ariel. Like this looks like an interesting book, but yeah. are you sure? That's like, I was like, are you kidding? This is amazing. Um, and the, so and I the def- person before you gave a book report on like, hop on pop or something you know it's like <laughs> well, my favorite writer is dr that, seuss maybe anastasia krupnik or something which is also <laughs> great but um wow. yeah so i basically was given this uh, earlier than usual introduction to like the best of the best comics mm-hmm. but i had also as a kid really loved um and still love like old disney movies and read a lot of newspaper strips we had like um, a big blondie collection in the house. I was really obsessed with for better or for worse. So I, you know, I think my dad's love of comics was probably my introduction, but then I also just had an affinity to drawing. My sister and I spent a lot of time drawing together as kids. She's Mm -hmm. two and a half years younger. And that was kind of our primary activity, just sitting side by side at this little table in the kitchen, like drawing and telling each other stories. And, um, yeah, so that was, that was basically it. And kind of, as I grew older around when I was 14 is when I discovered kind of like zines and mini comics and kind of the world of self publishing. And then that was what inspired me to create my own autobiographical comic, seeing stuff like Ariel Bordeaux's deep girl and Dan Klaus and stuff like that. How old were you when you self published your first comic? 15. 15. You were in middle school or late middle, early high school? Um, so I drew my first book, Awkward, the summer after my freshman year of high school gotcha. and, and self-published it my sophomore year. Selling it to you know, friends and family. And then what, yeah. like how, how did it, did it build from there? Yeah. I mean, basically, you know, I, it was kind of like an experiment. I had, I had been inspired to write this comic awkward about my ninth grade year of high school and after I finished it was just kind of like I was very proud of myself for finishing but I didn't really know what to do next it was kind of just there in like my drawer and my mom is a composer and a music teacher and so she as part of being a piano teacher wrote these books for her children Mm -hmm. Um, with like compositions. And so she would often go to the photocopy store and copy these books um, for her work. And I think I was just laying around the house one day and I was like, mom, like, you know, I wrote this comic. What's going to happen to my comic? And she was like, well, why don't we go make copies? And so that was like really thanks to her that she then kind of led me into self-publishing. And I think we made like 25 copies of Awkward and I sold them around school and people seemed to really like it. And it was very exciting. It was just kind of like a big confidence boost. Um, and I was like, I want to, I basically was like, I want to do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> it was like a <laughs> switched and I was like, okay, this is it. This is, it. <laughs> this is the greatest thing in the world. Like I write, you know, I draw and write yeah. and, and, and people like it. What could be better? So do you know off the top so of your I, head, how many comics, you've created from that point to today you know it's funny i just spent the last two days organizing all of my original art because i'm like trying to do like a spring cleaning and all of my art was just in these like battered old manila envelopes Mm -hmm. 
So I have like a very neat stack now <laughs> of almost all the comics I've ever drawn. Um, so you're going to go by inches. You're going to be like, well, my career is about I mean, 17 inches. <laughs> the awkward definition potential likewise is a total of, um, I don't, exactly remember like seven over 700 pages um for that series alone and then on top of that is maybe like a few hundred more pages of comics i would say yeah you're calling them comics i'm calling them comics would you also would it be fair to call them graphic novels well if you were talking about my high school series no because they're memoirs Mm -hmm. So I don't think the word novel would be appropriate. Um, that said, everybody calls them graphic novels, and I don't really care. Yeah. <laughs> I think when I was younger, I might have nitpicked more. But, um, but I, you know, people you do use the word graphic memoir, I think, when they're like referring to Alison Bechdel and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, there's you know, a, but I, I write fictional comics too, and so right. then those, but those are not maybe at the length that you would say mm-hmm. or that you would call something a novel. So I don't know. I actually don't believe I've ever written a graphic novel because I've never written a book length fictional story. A book length fictional story without art, though, because you have written. Well, a book well, well, right with art, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 I, I mean, I've say. written, I've written a novel. I've just never written a graphic right. Novel. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, like, what, what happened to Adam? Did, was that, did I get erased from my, you know, are we in a different timeline here? Just just being precise. Yeah, okay. Um, I, You know, you mentioned R. Crumb. I actually have a list of illustrators that that I thought, I, would, I guessed at were possible influences or, or maybe mm-hmm. interests. Uh, definitely R. Crumb, Linda Berry, and Mimi Pond. Mimi Pond, no. I've actually never read her work, um, but I would like to. Oh, yeah. It's biting as hell. Barry, I uh, didn't come to until later in life. I think I had seen her comics like in the East Bay Express Mm -hmm. along with like Life in Hell. Life in Hell was actually a really big influence. Matt Groening's early strip. Yeah. Um, And I think her comics like when I was – that would have been when I was much younger. And I think I was, it was like just a little too weird for me. But mm. as I grew older, I was reintroduced to her work in my twenties and of course fell in love with it. Yeah. But I would actually cite her as one of the earlier influences. I learned recently, is it Matt Groening or Groening? Groening? You know, there's <laughs> in one of his life in hell books, there's a panel that says, how the hell do you pronounce cartoonist name? And it says, you know, it's spelled G-R-O-E-N-I-N-G. And then right. it says rhymes with complaining. And so I I guess I always was like, oh, I guess that means it's graining. Right. But or is that a joke about complaining and groaning being similar? Oh, dang but if it. you think about the Germanic <laughs> O-E is like an uh Groaning. <laughs> it could be like an A. Oh my god! My, well, my kids are into The Simpsons now, so I'm gonna, I'm just gonna be like, oh, you, you know, this is Matt Groening, and and we'll Gr- just... yeah. I've always said Matt Groening because of that one comic panel, but I could gotcha. be wrong. All right. Well, someone, someone listening, maybe yeah. Matt, maybe Matt. Who knows? Um, yes. Doubt it. Well, I met him once actually. It was amazing. Did you it ask was him like, to pronounce his last name? I didn't, Damn. but it was like a dream scenario. I was the miami book fair and he was there and i wound up in like a shuttle from the hotel that we were staying at with him to the convention center yeah. 
And I turned around. I was like, are you, I, I, I probably said graining. Like, are you Matt graining? And he was like, yes. And he had heard of my books and it was like mind blowing that uh, that was true. And I ended up spending the whole weekend just hanging out with him. Yeah. And he was incredibly nice. And yeah. Well, I, I, I guess what I always like to say about celebrities is that they're nice, <laughs> but it was really true with him. Like people would come up to him. It was kind of fascinating because like, people came up to him like every two seconds yeah. to tell them how much he meant to them. And he was so gracious with all of them, which is not true of everybody. And it seemed exhausting, but he handled it very well. That brings to mind uh, Henry Winkler. Henry Winkler is the one celebrity that I actually know and met and they know me by name. I was art director for a bunch of his children's books back in a, a former life. Anyways, um, I asked, I asked him, I was like, you know, do you ever get tired of people coming up to you going like, hey, from being the Fonz from Happy Days? And he, he said, no. He's, he's like, this, look, I, I, I have my life. I have the life I have now. This very comfortable, lovely life because of Happy Days, because of the Fonz. And why would I look upon that negatively? I, I feel very grateful and appreciative of this. So if someone 30, 40 years later after Happy Days is coming up to me going like, hey, man, you're the Fonz. I'm, I'm going to be cool with that. And I, that's awesome. Yeah, it's very awesome. I, I met, I did meet Mimi Pond. Well, I wanted to, one, I did have a quick question about, um, not a question, but an observation. Something I learned recently is that Matt Groening, Groening, um, helped Linda Berry kind of like helped kickstart her, her, oh, definitely, her career yeah. early on, yeah, publishing really some of did. her stuff. As, a, as an editor. He, yeah. he was a big advocate for her. Yeah. I, I did meet Mimi Pond once. I was in LA. Really quick story. Probably not that exciting. But <clears throat> so Mimi Pond is married to this other artist, Wayne White. Wayne White was a, a, a designer for Pee Wee's Playhouse. And she was showing me and uh, it was uh, uh, grad school trip. So me and my classmates, a bunch of her stuff, and every second or third sentence was some like shit talking about editors. Like she had zero love for editors and how they like telling, you know, she just did not like them telling her what to do. Which leads me to this question for you. What, I mean, when it comes to like comics or graphic novel writing, let's call it comics writing, I mean, what is that relationship like? Because it's a ton of writing. You just said it yourself, hundreds of pages. So are, are, are you, what kind of writer are you when it comes to wanting to be edited? Or are you like, no, no, I got this. Step away, somewhere in the middle. Have you had fisticuffs because with an I started, editor once? No. <laughs> well, because I started out self-publishing, I there was no editor. And when I moved to having a publisher my first publisher was slave labor graphics. And so they just republished awkward and definition, which were already written. Um, the only editing that Dan suggested at the time was to make some of the handwriting more legible, which I did. Mm -hmm. And the, um, yeah. And so Dan Vado never had, uh, he never really, he, he didn't really work as an editor. Um, at least, for me, like he was very, just would publish what I gave him. Um, you know, there were, I remember there was one moment when it with likewise where I was sending him 
likewise books and we had a phone conversation and he was like, you know, they say brevity is the soul of all wit. And it was kind of crushing to hear because likewise is the opposite of, of a brief. Um, but he, you know, despite saying that he wasn't like, you need to change this. He, I was like, well, this is my book. And I, I, you know, I was, I was very headstrong with the high school series. I was not going to change anything for anybody mm-hmm. and, and didn't. Um, and even when I moved over to Simon and Schuster to publish likewise as, um, a, you know, as a full graphic memoir and the other books as, as graphic memoirs, mm-hmm. They didn't. I, ha, I had an official editor there, and she didn't have me change anything. I think um, it was kind of understood that this, this is it. This, this is this, this is it. But yeah. um, when I moved, you know, into novel writing um, with, with Adam, I had an editor at, at my publisher there, and she had a lot of great notes. And they were mainly like, just you know, cut here, let's rework this line, or you can beat this line. And I found all of those notes helpful. But I think you know. Also, working in television really helped me open up to the idea of the help of an editor because writing in TV is constant rewriting and constant notes. Mm-hmm. And you, you get to kind of watch something become better, and, and that can be pretty cool. So I think when it comes to comics, I still have a sort of – I think it's hard to receive editing feedback on comics unless they're from a cartoonist. Because it can be, I, I don't think, I think, you know, everybody kind of writes, but not everybody cartoons. <laughs> and there can be a misunderstanding about the way pacing is working and yeah. just the language of comics. So I think I, I will continue to be more resistant to editing with comics, but I'm very open to editing with my prose work and and have definitely benefited from it gotcha speaking of editing i first learned of you through stuck in the middle and it was introduced to me by jim hoover a friend of mine who's art director at viking and uh i mean i stuck in the middle i still have my son i gave it to my son way before he could even read i'm like this is going to be you're going to have this and uh, now I have daughters, and now now there's a rotation. <laughs> you know, it, it's uh, it speaks to me on so many levels, man. On so many levels, middle school for me was true hell, true true hell. I mean, lots of bullying, viciousness. My first introduction to depression, mm-hmm. to not wanting to be me. You know that, that those feelings, yeah, you know, yeah. just awful. And uh, anyways, so stuck in the middle just was a was a I don't know a little bit of a salve or something like oh okay you know it wasn't it, like I when you hear of other people having similar experiences it makes you, it just makes you feel better it makes me feel better anyway I can speak for myself uh how did that come about you know because you're not you're more, acting more as an editor in that in that regard mm-hmm. yeah um stuck in the middle came about because um a an editor at Viking, Joy Peskin, who she she's mm-hmm. I think she's an editor at FSG now actually, but she used to work at Viking. Yep, and Joy. She uh, oh great, so mm-hmm. she um, reached out to me after having read my memoir Potential, and was interested in working together. And we kind of talked about different ways we could work together, whether it would be writing like a prose book or another 
graphic memoir, something more about middle school. And I didn't feel that I wanted to write um, a whole, like a whole memoir about being in middle school. But I had written this one short comic about middle school called Shit. And I I suggested to her, I was like, well, what if I wrote another comic? Because there was another one that I had been wanting to write, this one plan on the number seven bus. I was like, well, what if I wrote another one and we coupled those with um, other stories about middle school? I know a lot of great cartoonists I could ask. And Mm -hmm. she liked the idea. And and that's sort of how it came to be. And I got to kind of go to my favorite cartoonists uh, and ask them, which was really cool. Did you oversee any of that at all in terms of like organization within the book editing any of that well it's funny yeah just now speaking of editing no i didn't (laughs) i didn't tell anybody to change anything i um i i respect the the yeah i mean i think um maybe i might if i had been confused by something i might have said something but no i don't remember asking anybody to change anything um uh, and I think Joy and I worked out the order and stuff together. I mean, gotcha. as an editor, I did kind of have to stay on top of like making sure we got them all in on time and mm-hmm. and making sure that the people's pitches for stories didn't overlap too much. Right. right. Um, but I, but as an editor, it was fairly hands off. You've you know your career. Has is has been supported by this like idea of mining your past of of you know these memoirs of looking back, maybe not so far back, but that too, and maybe just recently, but looking back on our experiences and and finding mining our past, you know, finding gold there and writing about it, or in illustrator's case, illustrating about it. I often share this tip with illustrators that I talk to, you know, when, when you're stuck on not knowing what to create next, whether it's illustrating or writing, look back on your past, look back on your own experiences. Is there something there that you can mine and build on and so forth? Lately, I've been reflecting on this piece of advice. It kind of assumes that for all of us, looking back on our lives is going to be a pleasant stroll. And that isn't a safe assumption. For some of us, you're, you're, you've left some demons behind. And when you visit your past, you might bump into them. Uh, how do you, I mean, do you, is, is this idea of mining your past, of looking back on your own experiences, is this, is this sort of part and parcel of how you, think about your own writing how you think about your own career where where are you where do you land on this idea well i'll just say first that i don't know why anybody would write about any past that was a pleasant stroll because that sounds really boring so i think you know if you're going to be writing about your past you're going to be writing about something that contained some conflict Mm -hmm. and that's good um i don't actually feel like i have spent a ton of time delving back into the past in my work because so much of the memoir work that I've done was written in the kind of immediate uh, past or, Mm -hmm. you know, so my high school books were all, even likewise, I wrote the entire book the year after I graduated high school. It took me 10 years to ink it, Mm -hmm. but 
Um, Wait, say that it again. It took you 10 years to ink it? It took me 10 years to draw and ink it, yes. <laughs> but I completed all 400 pages of rough drafts Damn. the year after. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, so that's kind of writing about your present. Uh, and then my book, Adam, which is not memoir, but which is a takes place in um, kind of the, a, a, a scene, a subculture that I was part of, mm-hmm. was also written kind of while I was in that subculture, right. sh- you right. know, shortly after. Mm-hmm. So there, I've written a few comics like, you know, the shit comic or some other comics about childhood where I'm looking back, but that hasn't actually been a ton of what I've done. But I am thinking about a new project I want to do that kind of is, I'd like to possibly do something that spans a longer amount of time, like maybe like a 20 year period. Mm -hmm. And so that will involve looking back and I'm kind of looking forward to that process. I'm like a hoarder of artifacts, ephemera, curios from my past. And so I have like all these, you know, tons and tons of notebooks and letters and Mm -hmm. just little, you know, tiny gifts that were given that, and all of that can kind of trigger memory. Um, so yeah, so I actually don't feel like I've done a, a ton of looking back, but I would like to, and the older I get, of course, like yeah. the more there is to, to work with. Sure. You said in an interview, I think people should be able to write from whatever perspective they want. That's the point of writing empathy and getting to know people that are not yourself. But I understand the criticism of writing from a marginalized experience that you haven't had yourself. This is a common, this comes up quite a bit in conversations that I'm having with illustrators slash writers. What can you write? What can't you write? Particularly these days. It's, it's, uh, I don't know. I was going to say it's tricky. Is it tricky? Yeah, I mean, I, I pretty much stand by what I said, which is that, you know, if so if me as a reader, as a partaker of some form of media, as an audience, I am going to be more drawn to works depicting uh, identities written or created by people with those identities because Mm -hmm. I'm just more interested in authenticity. Mm -hmm. Um, that doesn't mean that I would reject something, um, created by somebody that wasn't from that identity, but I'm just, I'm going to assume that it's not going to be as good. So I tend to seek out work, uh, written by people from those identities. Um, but that said, you know, I do think that there are, that you should be able to write whatever you want, but you should also be open to criticism. So if you write something from an identity that's not your own and people tell you, hey, you got this wrong, Mm -hmm. this is not how it is, then you should listen. And it's, Hmm. of course, more likely that you will get it wrong. So I think, you know, that's kind of how I feel about it. I don't think there should be any hard, fast rules. But personally, I'm I'm just, I gravitate towards stuff that's... uh, that's, you know, from the identity of, of the person they're, or from the character that they're writing about. And I think you need to really be open to feedback. I agree 100% with everything you said. However, criticism and feedback 
our criticism and feedback, but it's not usually what happens. It's not usually no, it's emotionally not. intelligent uh, coming no. from a pl- coming from a place of like assuming that the person isn't doesn't have like nefarious motives. They're 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 instantly assuming that you are the villain and that what you're doing is purposefully intentionally harmful. And so if it's emotionally intelligent adult criticism by all means, but that's not what happens. It's usually it's like outrage telephone. It goes from a criticism it, it goes from like hey folks, take a look at this to then oh what the heck is this? all the way to this person is some, you know, awful word to let's try and end their career. I mean, that's, that's what ends up happening. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I I don't know. It feels like 80% of social media is like a horror show. And then maybe 20% there's positive things going on. Like people whose voices might not be heard are now being heard um criticisms that might have been buried due to gatekeeping or whatever um can now be heard but yeah it's mostly crazy people who want to be outraged repeating a game of telephone and you know weighing in on something that they've never seen or read and that's there you go. a shame there you go um so obviously i'm anti that but i but i'm not anti um you know people having a, an avenue to voice opinions so i yeah. I don't know what the solution is, you know. I, I don't either. I, I think I think things will get easier. Like that great song. Um, I think <laughs> things will get easier. They will. I think right now there's a lot of dust up and there's a and I don't quite know where it's gonna settle or how it's gonna settle, but I do think it will settle eventually and I hoping, hopeful that it'll settle in a again, an emotionally intelligent way. And in a, in a way that makes sense, in a way that's respectful and all that kind of stuff. It, it, I, I don't know, man. I, I just don't subscribe to any group, organization, thought process that denies any, like that, that um, feels of themselves that they are infallible. That, that's dangerous, man. If you follow these kind of like YA Twitter wars it's always the case that the person that was the most outraged that was having, you know, that was expressing the most glee calling someone out is mm-hmm. then called out themselves like six months later, you right. know? So yeah. it's, it just, yeah, it's like a domino effect. Um, right. No one's really safe. It's going to be everyone's turn eventually. Right. What drives me up the goddamn wall is that the person, that person you're talking about, the, they will not allow others room for growth. Yeah. But then when they themselves are canceled, that is the first thing they ask for. The internet apology is now like a parody of itself. It's just <laughs> like, you're, I just like every day, I like, you know, who's apologizing today using yeah. the exact same wording. And there will then be a million responses of just, um, you know, as if you could think that this would be enough or do better or right. like, ha ha, like just like completely this ain't it, this ain't it chief. It. That's a good one. Yeah. This ain't it chief. <laughs> this ain't it chief. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It just, it honestly feels like I'm just like, should I see what's happening in the circus today? Yeah. I'd like look online for a minute, but you know, but that said, like, I don't want to, like I said before, I don't want to be dismissive of 
of right. social media because I really do think that a lot of these things like are are great and are teaching people to be more sensitive exactly. or open minded in ways that are really important. So it's a mixed bag. Yep, it is. I, I find it fascinating that people who who I, I would I presume are relatively intelligent and learned and and such are absolutely incapable of saying, oh, this thing happened. I, you know, I don't know anything about it. So I will not comment. <laughs> what a thought. <laughs> anyway, let's, oh so God. talking about Adam, when, when did that book come out? The novel? Uh, 2014. 2014. Okay. I'm sure you've been asked about this like a thousand times in a thousand interviews. Uh, I suspect you might be sick of answering this kind of question about Adam. Do you think Adam would have a chance in hell of getting published today? Clearly I don't. I don't know. I mean, it's about um, a teenage boy who's a cis het, you know, he, me, uh, in, in, as a teenager who pretends to uh -huh. be, who identifies, who pretends to identify as trans. Uh, yeah, he, he, he pretends to be a trans man. Right. Um, I, I really don't know. I mean, like word for word as it is now, my first thought is not so much that the premise would be immediately, uh, shunned, but mm -hmm. I think what editors might be more sensitive to now is some of the homophobic trans phobic thoughts in Adam's mind. Mm -hmm. So some people's issue with the book is that there, it, there are these passages of transphobia where Adam will be looking or homophobia where Adam will be looking at butch women and thinking, Oh, they look gross or right. trans people are weird. So, you know, most people who read know that that's, you know, something that happens in fiction where characters have certain thoughts sure. and they're not, the thoughts of the author they're depicting um <laughs> it seems you, stupid you really you really are an that, idealist but, aren't you um most people know that you know you're you're depicting transphobia you're not promoting it um but that said i could possibly see some editors being shy to publish some of those lines yeah. now in a way that people you know weren't right. but i don't know if the premise itself would be would be totally written off that i can't say that's fair i'm a little fired up i'm gonna calm down and and look at this from a, <laughs> from a calmer you know that's fair i think i i think i'm i'm with you on that one and, and maybe there's some some wording that might need to be updated i mean i look man i grew up in this I, well, I, didn't, I was born in 77 so i grew up in the 80s and the word queer was awful it was a terrible word. I was learn. I was taught that you do not use the word queer. It is the same as using other incredibly negative, very hurt hurtful words. And it it's completely flipped. You know, I, I was talking about this with, with an illustrator uh, who identifies as queer the other day, and I, I still I'm not old. I'm 44, and I when I say the word queer, it it feels hard. It it it's uh not it's not that it's not easy it's just it's just a little i don't know there's like a little stick to it 
I have to like well, kind of push it, it, it out a little bit. It's hard to unlearn something that's, right. you know, yeah. that you kind of carried with you since childhood. But it's interesting, like now a lot of young, I don't know, I'm not sure what I would call them, young queer or gay or homosexual people like are, don't like people using the word dyke. I mean, this is the word, this is what we called ourselves in high school. We were dykes. Mm -hmm. We didn't like the word lesbian. It sounded like old hippie women. You know, we, that's what we were. And it was positive and it was descriptive of us. And the idea now that what anybody would tell me that I can't call myself a dyke is like, fuck off. See there, I swear. (laughs) Nice. Nice. Gotcha to swear. Uh, you've written for the L word. You've written books, you've written comics. Is, is the approach the same, you know, in terms of like ideation? Uh, well, TV, TV is always collaborative. So that's never going to be you alone at your drawing table, drawing. And I assume that like, maybe like, okay, Ariel, you'll take this scene. And then we, and then the collaboration maybe comes after in the editing process, but obviously I'm wrong. No, TV is like every everything is collaborative. It's collaborative from the moment that you pitch an idea to an executive who has to sign on to it to make it happen at all. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're giving you notes and feedback and then you write an outline and get notes and feedback and then you write a pilot and get notes and feedback and then you get actors who may have thoughts and then you have a writer's room with like eight people batting around ideas and then you write something. I thought publishing was bad. (laughs) <laughs> no, I mean, it's actually really wonderful. It's super fun. I mean, it's part of the reason I really love writing for TV is because I get really lonely just writing by myself all the time. And I, I love being in a writer's room. And mm-hmm. It's it's great. Um, it's I don't think I would be satisfied only doing it. I think I, I like to be able to have my thing where I have complete control as well. But yeah. it's nice to do both. Um, so that's the biggest difference. Okay. Do you still teach writing? I still teach my course at the new school, mm-hmm. um, the graphic novel workshop. I did not teach last semester because of the pandemic, but I'm hoping to teach it again. Wait, it's called a graphic novel workshop? That's the name of the course, yeah. Did you? Did I did it... not come up with the name. Okay, I was going to say. <laughs> I, I think I wanted to call it comics workshop, and they were like, oh, hold up, hold up. Hold graphic up. novels are hot. Let's call <laughs> it graphic And novel. I was like, okay, but that's ridiculous because nobody in this class is writing a full graphic novel they're going to be writing comics it's kind of where it's going like, with that yep yeah okay <laughs> <Stupid>. um <laughs> uh, how many so how many years have you taught writing i started teaching that class in 2014 okay it was my first job out of college um oh wow same year as adam yeah sorry i don't know why i said 2014 2004 oh <laughs> yes i graduated college in 2003 and yeah, started teaching that in 2014. So it's been yeah, 2004. So it's been an extremely long time. And it's been really interesting to watch how sure. the classes and the class dynamics and just the, the, the groups of kids who come in. Yeah. Gr- kids and adults. It's a, right. it's a night class. So we get a mix. Nice. So there are writers listening and, uh, yeah. or people who want to be writers, but can't seem to get past that first step of sitting down and typing a word. What have you learned about the writing process over these years, teaching, writing, that you wish you knew from the get-go? You know, I actually feel like, like a lot of creative people, it's less what do I wish I'd known, but it's like 
trying to get back to the place I was at when I first started creating, which is a much less self-conscious state. Mm. Just sitting down for the pleasure of it. You know, it's been, when I was in high school, even though I knew I wanted to do comics for the rest of my life, there was also part of me that was like, well, maybe I should be a high school biology teacher and do comics on the side because I was terrified of my comics seeming like work. Mm -hmm. They were purely something I did for pleasure and joy. I didn't want to ever feel like I had to do them and I didn't want to feel like I was dependent on them for money. But as I grew older, I kind of came to realize that it just in terms of time, it was not going to be possible to have one career and then spend as much time as I wanted to on comics at the same time. So I, you know, I decided to, to go down this route of writing and, and being able to write for movies and TV was kind of ended up being the, a nice way to do something that was different, uh, while also working on comics at the same time. Mm-hmm. I think that that's important to remember that it's, that it's, it should be fun and to have fun with it. I think it's always helpful to go into a project thinking nobody has to see this if I don't want them to. When I started writing Adam, I knew it was a totally weird idea. I was like, this is so, this is, this is kind of crazy, mm-hmm. but let's just see what happens if I write it. And if I don't like it, I don't have to publish it. Um, and then, you know, the, the sooner I got towards the end, I was like, you know what? I'm actually really happy with this. I, I do want to try to publish it. Right. But I, I wrote the whole thing kind of just for myself. So I think that's an important attitude, the idea that you're free to experiment with whatever you want. And then just on a practical level, w- one thing that has really helped me over the years is setting out blocks of time in which I have to write. So telling myself, okay, I'm, I'm, I have to write for two hours each day, which isn't even all that much, but it but it is when it adds up, you know? Oh my God. That sounds like, that sounds like an impossible feat for me. Well, yeah. So maybe once you have a family and a job, like it it can get hard, but yeah, to, to try to figure, you could even say one hour a day, like I have to write one hour a day and you will absolutely have something significant, you know, at the end of six months. So that's what I'll do is I'll sort of set out blocks of time that I need to fulfill. We are, have run out of time, sadly. Uh, <clears throat> so speaking directly to the listeners of this episode, many of whom are illustrators, comics creators, writers, what would be one last little bit of advice that you'd like to share with them? My piece of advice would be to find a room with a door you can close where you're the only person in the room. which is not always the easiest thing to do, mm-hmm. but seek that out because something really special happens when it's just you uninterrupted and you have that kind of peace and quiet to try to create something. To learn more about Ariel, visit arielschrag.com. If you enjoyed our conversation, please share it with your friends, subscribe to the podcast, and provide a positive rating and review. Become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash illustration D-E-P-T. In return, you'll receive our soft enamel pin, 
a reusable discount code for 10% off, and access to patron-only episodes we're calling Extra Credit. This podcast is produced by the Illustration Department, a global leader in online education for illustrators. Visit us at illustrationdept.com for class offerings, testimonials, the alumni showcase, the podcast show notes, our forum, the bookshop, and more. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.